giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Natalie Nagel, co-founder and CEO of Wildbit. Natalie, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's been a long time. It's been five years. You last came on the show in 2013. I remember. Um, I did not re-listen to it, yeah. <laughs> but I do remember. That's okay. I didn't either. Perfect. So we'll start <laughs> from scratch. Like it never happened. Well, I, I'm curious, you know, thinking back to 2013, it's been a long time. What has changed with Wildbit since then? Man, I mean, so much. We, uh, in the practical sense, we're bigger, right? We're more people now. Our Philly remote thing is pretty, I think, solidified where we have like a headquarters in Philadelphia and then about two-thirds of our team is remote. So mm-hmm. we, when we started Wildbit, it's 100% remote. Then we kind of did this Philly thing and then, you know, with some folks remote. And now we, I think we found a really nice balance around that. Product-wise, we have a different product suite than we did in 2013. But I think from a team standpoint, like a company standpoint, a lot more intentional soul-searching and kind of changes that we've made in the company and how we run it with more meaning and purpose than I think in 2013 we probably had. Or we were probably just like on the cusp of starting to understand that. So let's start on the product side and then we'll make our way to the meaning and purpose side of things. Yeah. You said you've you've got some new products since 2013. So what are the products that are still going today and, and what are the new products? Yeah, so we still have Beanstalk, which just turned 11 a couple weeks ago. So that's uh, been around and it was around back then. That's our Git-hosted version control deployments, kind of team collaboration software. On the other side of Beanstalk, what's new is a product called Conveyor, conveyor conveyor.com, which we're working on. It's in a beta right now, which is our actual next iteration of Beanstalk. So, you know, you take an 11-year-old product and you think, how would you solve that problem today? And, of course, it's nothing near what it was 11 years ago. And so we decided to kind of take it on and start all over. So that's kind of my kind of version control team collaboration piece. And then the other side of that is Postmark, which is a transactional email service provider that's been around for nine years in April. Um, And that's half the company, half the team, more than half the team, half the company. And that's doing really well. Back when we talked to you in 2013, a lot of the questions around Beanstalk were related to, well, how does Beanstalk exist in a world with GitHub and and that kind of thing? And I feel like since then, it's probably only gotten more extreme. So how have you managed to continue existing in a world with GitHub? So I think that's part of the soul searching. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we're a small team, we're we're bootstrap, we're profitable. So for us, the size of the audience doesn't have to be massive, right? Mm -hmm. So and that's what we talked about in 2013 is a lot of like, you know, we don't need 50% of the market, we need a small percentage of the market to enable us to have the type of company that we want. And I think that still holds very much true. What we realized about three years ago, as we're going through some of that soul searching and trying to understand like, what do we enjoy doing? What do we love working on? The challenge when you compete against a large company like that is understanding where you have fun and what you want to work on and whether that aligns well with the market change and the competition and what you want to do. And what we kind of hit a point was for us to continue to compete, we had to either look at it like more features, more features, right? Which was going to start feeling very fragmented at that point with a huge audience like that, that we already had. And then on the other side was on the marketing kind of 
top of funnel stuff. And that's not really our cup of tea, right? Financially, we can't afford to go after somebody like that. So we can't come in, you know, and just make a big splash, you know, Mm -hmm. don't have the money for that. Other kind of marketing we could have kind of played around with. But ultimately, what we looked at and said was like, well, GitHub provides a very valuable service that we use ourselves for some projects and, and, you know, and, and it's a great product and people love it. So like, what are we actually trying to solve and what do we enjoy doing? And so at, what we ended up doing was we sat down with a couple of the guys on the team who built Beanstalk still with Wild, but today we sat up on our roof late at night and we said like, all right, what do we love doing? And if we were to do that, like if we were to build it from scratch, what would we do and what would it look like? And we just started talking about what gets us excited and, Piling features on top of each other is not what gets us excited. Mm -hmm. Thinking about difficult problems and how can we translate them into something interesting and how can we help an audience understand and and be better, right? That's where we get excited. And so what we ended up doing was because the competition was so large, I think it was just more saying – what do we love to do? And so Conveyor was born out of this idea that like we spent a bunch of time talking to customers and there was an audience out there that still really struggles with this balance between best practices and all these things I'm supposed to do and all these things people tell me I'm supposed to do and and getting work done and getting paid for it, right? And so how do you blend those two things together? And I think where Wildbit comes in, one of our kind of superpowers is taking complex problems and trying to make them feel better, right? Trying to obscure some of that. And so we looked at it and said, if we were to solve a problem today, it wasn't Git hosting or SVN hosting back then, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's a commodity. Right. It's something different. And that's what we kind of decided to do. So who is your sort of core customer, your most valuable customer? I think on Conveyor, we're really looking at teams, you know, two to 15, probably closer to five to 10 probably Mm -hmm. is a good bet. In a lot of ways, folks who do client services work, so agencies, um, teams that kind of expand and contract a little bit, you know, so hire more as they have more work, maybe contract, who are looking for a single process to manage their development process and to enable them to get focused work done. So conveyors all kind of tasks as branches, right? Mm -hmm. So everything you do has its own branch and has a built-in workflow where we try to help you not have to reinvent it every single time. And so that's a process that's really valuable for teams who are like, I have to get work done. I'm getting paid to get work done. I'm getting paid to write good code. I'm getting paid to ship what I promised my customer. I'm not getting paid to mess around, to try to untangle a bad merge, to, to do all these things that are just not interesting, right? that don't make me less of a developer, it makes me a better developer because I'm actually getting paid to do what I'm supposed to do. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where I think our sweet spot is. I think as you get into larger, you have very complex workflows and things like that. And right now we're keeping it pretty streamlined to say like, this is what you really need to get things done. And then project management is built in too because the idea is that like all of that ties very closely. You can't do good work if you don't know what you're supposed to be working on, what the rest of your team's working on. So when we get to build that in together, right now it's pretty simple. So it's really focused on kind of smaller teams without a very complex process built in. When you decided, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to work on Conveyor, did you do a lot of research? Did you start doing interviews? What did you do to like make sure you were headed in the right direction? Or did you just rely on, hey, we, we're building a product for ourselves? We started by talking a lot to Beanstalk customers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually talked a lot to Beanstalk customers myself, leading even up to deciding we're going to do this mm-hmm. and just trying to understand what was next for Beanstalk. Because we got to a point where we were looking at the workflow, like code, review, deploy, right? But in Beanstalk, it was like these three sections 
questions, you know, and they didn't yeah. really talk to each other. And when I started talking to customers, folks were like, I get it. I'm here. But now what? Like, what do I do? I know I'm supposed to do all these things. And more and more as I was talking to teams and the rest and the support team was talking to teams, it was like very clear that there's really smart people out there, but it's a lot harder to write code now than it was back then. And it's only getting more complicated. And there's just a lot vying for your attention, a lot of best practices, a lot of services, a lot of things but that's not what we're getting paid to do. So I think we started with that, really understanding that. And then we kind of went internal because to some degree, we're inventing something a little bit new. Mm -hmm. we're, we're borrowing from a lot of frameworks, right? We're obviously built on top of Git and we're looking at things that exist, but we're looking at it and saying, what are the workflows that we kind of believe are best practices without feeling heavy? And I mean, the crazy idea was that like, our SVN users, and we have plenty of those still, could use Conveyor without feeling any pain because a lot of those teams, believe it or not, really want to use Git, but it's expensive. You know, mm -hmm. bigger teams or, or teams that just it takes a lot of work and they have clients work that they have to do instead. And so that was the idea was like we went internal and then we brought it up again. And so we kind of built a minimally viral product that took two years. But uh, <laughs> we could talk about MVPs all day. <laughs> Um, but, you know, we brought it out to customers and we, we took like a very small group of hand selected teams and said, what do you think of this very bare bones piece? They came back and said, cool, except that's not the promise you were offering and bare bones. Your MVP is not actually an MVP because the product is offering something so much bigger. So then we went back, we rewrote it, I think once or twice. And, you know, so it's been, mm -hmm. it's been a process, but right now it's in a beta. We've kind of hit a point that I keep pushing with the team is like, we now don't know which way to go. We have now hit minimal viable, even though it took three mm -hmm. years of like the bare promise, but where to go from here, we need more feedback. So now we're in this, like we've been, we've invited, I think about 200 teams at this point to start playing and to start telling us, is it deployments that you want? Is it integrations with other things? Like, what do you want, right? Because we can go in a million directions and I don't want to spend another six months going in one direction, find out that's not really where people want us to go. Mm -hmm. You have the two major products previously to convey our existing. How do you manage who works on what? And when it came to, okay, we're going to create a new product, how did you decide how much you were going to invest in that and what team was going to do it? So before Conveyor, we also had DeployBot, which That's we right. sold. Okay. Yeah, so we sold that. So that I only say that because that team kind of migrated a little bit too. Mm -hmm. We, a bunch of years ago, kind of really tried to draw a darker line in the sand with products that people work on. You can move between products, but that would be like a big dramatic decision. It wouldn't be like mid-iteration or mid-year. It would be like, okay, I'm moving, you know, I'm, I'm tired or I want some a new challenge or learn something new. So for the most part, we have a pretty dark line. Like this is the Postmark team and this is the, you know, kind of Beanstalk conveyor team. When we had DeployBot and we were focusing on that, when we sold that, that product was partially sold so that we could focus more on conveyor. So that team stayed. So we sold just the product and the team stayed mm -hmm. with us. So Chris and I try to run them pretty separately because they're in separate stages of their lives. Postmark is very much in a growth stage, tons of customers growing, you know, all these things. That team, you know, has a marketing team and has a content for, you know, like has all these things. And then we look at conveyor and we say, scrappy, keep it small. We don't need a solid process right now of like all these, you know, product specs and things like that. Let's just keep hacking on it until we get to a point where we have customers so we can actually like test and iterate. And what happened with Beanstalk was we actually stopped doing any kind of updates to Beanstalk. We are supporting it. Mm -hmm. uh, we have two dedicated support people on it and obviously making sure it's up and available and fast and all those things, but we're not building new features for it. That entire team relocated to Conveyor. And going into it, how did you think about making 
the investment you were going to make in Conveyor? Did you set budgets or was it much more organic than that? It was definitely organic. Part of our reasoning to do Conveyor was, you know, we have these folks on the team who've been with us for a long time and seeing the path forward for them in Beanstalk wasn't going to be as exciting. So we kind of made a commitment and said, like, they deserve a chance to build what they think would be the next version of Beanstalk. Mm-hmm. We owe them that opportunity. So Chris and I kind of said, Beanstalk can support it, right? Like we have, so we almost look at that as the Beanstalk conveyor is the Beanstalk yeah. team so that it's building the next iteration of Beanstalk so that our Beanstalk customers have a better product, but that's thoughtful and created from a today's perspective, not a 11-year-old, 12-year-old perspective. But from a budget standpoint, not really uh, up until probably this year because we're getting to that point where it's like time, <laughs> three mm-hmm. years. So we're looking at it, you know, to say like as long as Beanstalk can support it, you know, Wildbit still has Wildbit expenses. But as long as we can, Beanstalk can still support it and it can. So that's just kind of maintaining that product. But we're setting some pretty strong deadlines in 2019 to just get more feedback. We need that customer. We're at that point, all of us were just like somebody, we need to hear from real people, real users to tell us like, are we on the right track? You know, it just happened mm-hmm. to be a, such a big product to build because we have a desktop client and that was very new for us. Mm-hmm. So, you know, made a lot of mistakes there. <laughs> Did you know that you needed a desktop client from the beginning or was that something you discovered along the way? When we said we're going to do something new, we did not know we were going to need a desktop client. Mm -hmm. And the team, a very small team, went out and started building some ideas around it. And they came about four months later and said, we can't do this without a desktop client. What we knew with Beanstalk is by the time it got to us, by the time the commit was pushed or the changes were pushed or the branch was merged, it was like too late for us to help. You know, we can create guides and articles and give you really good file. But like, it's too late. And so we knew that we had to be closer to the code. And so we kind of committed to the product and then said, all right, we're going to build a desktop client. And how hard can that be? I mean, we knew it was going to be hard, but how hard can that be? And holy moly. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, there was like changes in, you know, Swift and, you know, there's, there's, yeah. there's so much going on. And we started native and then we ended up with, we have an Electron app. So mm-hmm. it's like, you know, we've made some pretty dramatic changes and learned a lot about ourselves. Is that the primary reason why it's taken three years or were there other reasons too? That's 100% that's the reason. Mm-hmm. We had to change the entire way in which we built. So like our design team is so used to designing and mocking things up. Mm-hmm. And here it was like, we're going to draw something and just like pass it over the wall mm-hmm. and hope that it gets implemented and engineer implements it and then passes it back. And it's like, well, no, that's, I need to change, you know? And it was like this really slow process for us. And honestly, just, we don't know how to do that stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, I can build web apps all day long. You know, I can go from zero to, to MVP in three months. It's like this was, right. and with all our knowledge about how Git works and how to, you know, run Git servers and all these things, like now we had to build it into the, de- and we wanted it to be fast and we needed to understand how it's going to be fast. It's just, yeah, definitely the the client. It sounds like it was tough. Was there any point where you started to question whether it was worth the investment? No, I, I can't question that until I have, actual users telling me that it's not the right solution. So mm-hmm. like for us, it wasn't a question of worth the investment. It was, it was we had to move forward. So mm-hmm. that, I have to get there. Wildbit's been around for a, a long time now. Do you think that the fact that you've been around for so long gives you a longer term perspective and that, okay, it's, it's taken two years to get to the point we're at. It's taken another year since then. And that's okay because we've been around for how long has it been now? 18 years. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. I think there's a, that's a double-edged sword. For mm-hmm. sure, we have the luxury of being private. 
and bootstrapped and all those things to say, there's nobody pushing behind me. But I also think on the flip side of that is we've become perfectionists, right? Mm -hmm. Like we've become to the point where our process and we have a really solid QA process on conveyor and we have, you know, ticketing systems and all these things and success folks who are thinking about customers and building tooling and, you know, and all these things that I've never had when we launched a product and we've launched a bunch at this point, you know? So there's probably an argument that we would have moved faster had we been scrappier Mm -hmm. with the lack of experience, you know, and all these folks that are working on it are also folks who are used to wild, but level quality and, you know, for existing products. And so it's tricky to say like to design team to say like you get a week, like that's Mm -hmm. all, you know, like it doesn't have to be pixel perfect. And it's like, even that is like, well, I didn't make it pixel perfect. And I was like, yeah, now take it down another two notches. You know, like how do you, that it's tricky for a team that's been around for this long. It sounds like you didn't quite solve that. (laughs) Did not solve that. (laughs) We're getting better. I think Electron has helped because the design team can actually like implement, you know, so we're moving much faster now. Mm -hmm. Why did you decide to sell DeployBot? Well, I think there was a few things as part of that. You know, DeployBot, great product that was growing for us in a market that is tricky, I mean, deployments last year, especially, and it's still to this day, but it's such a fragmented kind of question that hasn't been solved yet, right? Like there's a lot of ideas, a lot of perspectives on how apps should be deployed, how how we should handle that, testing, you know, all these things. And so we built this awesome deployment engine that could go in a million different directions. And we had started working on Conveyor and Chris and I were kind of in this point where we had Postmark, which is this growing, half the company has huge potential, um, Conveyor, which is this thing that we really believe in, really excited about, and then DeployBot, which in itself is an entire business, right, with a ton of strategic decisions that need to be made. And really, we felt like we had to dive really deep into deployments and like what that means in the industry right now and how folks are deploying and what's out there and just get really, really, really into it. And it just no longer could be this like another product. Like mm-hmm. it needed it needed more commitment from somebody to be extremely thoughtful about what's going on in the industry. And so for us, you know, looking at the ecosystem, like that was the only one we could sell really because, mm-hmm. you know, conveyor beanstalk are tied to each other and postmark is growing very well for us. So it was like it it, it felt like the right decision to kind of that was the piece that we could offload. And it was growing, right? So the buyer could take something that was growing and, and build something and expand on it. Do you think that the way that you're structured or and you sort of alluded to it before means that you sort of have a built-in limit right now of two significant products that require a lot of your time that you and Chris can split between? I think that we are definitely tapped out right now unless Mm -hmm. we organizationally change something. Mm -hmm. It's a hot topic for both of us right now is organizational structure and kind of our operating system and how we want to run the business and what while it looks like in another 10 years and what does that mean? And I think barring an organizational structure that enables us to have kind of leads, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever you want to call them per product, yes, we're definitely tapped out. But could we build something? Could we envision something where we have more products, but we have kind of folks that are manning those uh, ships? Then I think that it's doable. And that's mm-hmm. that's the direction we're going in a little bit. I don't want necessarily a company with a ton of little products and folks moving back and forth. And that's not really the way Chris and I work. So mm-hmm. like, I don't think it would be one of those scenarios. And there's a bunch of great examples we all know, right, of people who can like buy up apps and like have, you know, somebody works a week here and then a week there and all these other things. For us, I think it would be if we did another product, it would be like a full-fledged product with its own team. 
So to do that would need to have an organizational structure that supports that so that yeah. we can be much higher up. Given that you both are so focused and you're in general, you're focused on, you know, having the kind of company you want, being fulfilled in your work. How do you balance, you know, those sort of values driven things with maybe the more business oriented decisions? Okay, we could have this other team and we could be bigger and we could. How do you balance that? A lot of soul searching. We set some revenue goals. I mean, to be totally frank, mm -hmm. I, the way Chris and I look at it is like we need to make sure that our margins are such that we can support paying really great people a really good living with all the benefits and all the things that we want. So you kind of have to start there and say like, you know, as a profitable business, like that has to be there. And then it's like, well, how do you get there? Right. And then that's where there's a bunch of options. There's a bunch of alternatives and, and how you get there. You know, sales is a great example. Like we could have a sales team and do kind of commission-based sales and spray and pray, you know, sending emails to everybody and, hey, I haven't heard from you. Hey, I haven't heard, you know, all that stuff that we mm -hmm. all get. Or we can take a more creative route and try that, right? And so that's what we choose to do. So I think like in all those small decisions saying, how do we reach our revenue goals? But we set those revenue goals in a way that's sustainable. So it's like, I don't need to double revenue in one year, right? So mm -hmm. like, what do we need, right? And then we put a plan together and say, well, we want to hire these people and we want to make sure the raises are such and we want to have a budget for this and a budget for that. And it's like, okay, cool. Well, we really need this at these margins. So how can we get there? So we, we try to be as intentional about it as possible because over the years we would just kind of do stuff and then you realize you run out of money and you're like, you can't just do stuff. Um, so it's like, we're trying to be more thoughtful and also just, you know, the team wants to know like, what are we, what are we chasing and why are we chasing it? So we just choose what the destination is and it's never going to be some grandiose because we don't have to repay a VC or anybody back. Like we, we can just make it so that it's sustainable for us. So the four day work week is a great example, right? We've been doing this 32 hour work week for the last year and a half. And we keep talking as a team. All right, what does that mean? Right? What are we leaving on the table? Can we continue to grow at a rate that we need to working only 32 hours? So if that's all of our mission, right? Like uh, the whole team is committed. So we really want these 32 hours. We really want to prove that we can get great work done in only 32 hours. Well, then we have to make really good decisions. We have to work on the right things, right? We have to cut out crap. You know, we can't have meetings that are useless. We can't, you know, there's all these things, right? It enables this whole conversation with the end goal being we need to be profitable and hit certain certain numbers, right? And I think that that's worked well for us. I mean, we've strayed, obviously, and this was a hard year for us. It was the first year we weren't really profitable because we hired a bunch of really amazing people. And, you know, I have a director of finance and operations for the first time in my life. Like, that's really exciting and it's mm -hmm. really big. But, you know, like that kind of stuff impacts margins pretty dramatically mm -hmm. and in 18 years is the first year we've ever been that close and you know I'm confident I know the team is confident but that start you start asking a lot of questions internally like what are we doing and why are we doing it and I think those are really healthy conversations to have and to think about every meeting you're in to think about every feature you're working on to think about every you know, kind of decision we're making to say like why are we doing this is this for the good that we've set out to achieve and sometimes it's not. And we have to have those conversations, too. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that's it's just kind of that melding of the two things. So your products are entirely bootstrapped. As you were starting out a new product, did you ever consider okay, maybe we need to take investment or was it 100 percent bootstrapped all the way? Like no questions. So Chris and I have definitely thought about it and I think less for the new product and more for mm -hmm. Postmark. And it's an exercise that we have that I think is really valuable. We've done this for years now. We'll say like, we'll each individually write down like what would we spend a million dollars in cash on? 
and just like mailing box, right? Like mm-hmm. just cash, you know, both come up and look at our papers and it's always a few hundred grand, right? It's like <laughs> dollars, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but when we got to a point where all of a sudden you're growing a product, there's more opportunity, right? Like building a product, I don't ever see a need to, conveyor is a little tricky because of how long it took us, but I still don't think more money would have helped. I think it would have complicated things. Mm-hmm. Well, in Postmark, you have a growing product, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I can clearly see ways in which, you know, like if we had more folks here or more here, you know, we can get into a new market here. You know, like you start really visibly seeing things. The problem for Chris and I is we're stubborn, and I just don't want to make it so. You know, like I don't, mm-hmm. there's just something about proving that we don't need it and, and growing at a sustainable rate that I'm just really committed to. So like, I definitely see more opportunities to, and I'm going to, this is going to come out and then I'm going to get all the VCs coming down my, <laughs> in my box. But like, I, I, there's opportunities for sure. Right. But what, what we'd be giving up for this to speed up growth just doesn't, you know, match up. Cause then what are we speeding up growth for anyway? Right. So it's, mm-hmm. it's more for, from an internal standpoint, I will say that, you know, when I said we're not profitable this year, part of the thing was that we wanted, we kind of said with a team in December that we have this vision for Postmark, you know, like we've been building it for a long time. It's an extremely loved product and it's very good at what it does. And so, you know, when you're bootstrapped and profitable, you're scrappy. And in December, we kind of said to the team, like, we owe it to ourselves to build a product we know we can build. Mm-hmm. And so it was like that idea, like we're going to hire a little faster. We're going to give ourselves more space, more more breathing room to do some of the things that we want to do became like a team, the team mission, right? So kind of sacrificing those profits a little bit to just allow us to see some of the work that we want to get done come together is a, is a big part of it. So that's kind of, I think, when I think about VC, the, the biggest reason is I want to do some of the things that we get excited about, you know, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's hard, like, oh, we could use another couple engineers or we could use, you know, another design or, you know, or whatever. Right. Or, oh, I wish I just had more money so I could just throw everything in AWS and, and you know, and whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's all these things you kind of get excited about. That's where the VC comes in. But then the flip side of that is losing control and having to chase something that I don't want to chase at all, you know, and would totally be counter to everything we're building for team first and slow, sustainable. So it's just it's it never balances out. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned the four day work week. You've been doing that for about a year and a half now. That's another maybe another example of a thing that would be difficult to do if you weren't in control and didn't have outside influences. I think so for sure. One forty work weeks more expensive. We've been tracking, you know, as the customer base is growing on Postmark, like how much more support are we getting? And if you only have folks doing support four days a week, you need more folks to do the fifth day, right? Mm-hmm. So because we're basically alternating Fridays and Mondays. And so just from that perspective, you need more headcount, right? And support. And then there's other things like I think from an engineering standpoint, we're probably, you, you need some more coverage, right? For on calls and for just some of this stuff. So it's probably costing us more money. I think support is probably the only place and we're working to streamline that and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I think a VC would probably come to us and maybe would come to us and say, well, that doesn't make any sense. You're spending too much money. Work the extra day like everybody else does and don't be ridiculous. <laughs> just get your work done and stop getting cute, you know? So. Yeah, I mean, that, that's just a, a simple one, right? We pay 100% health insurance. We do tons of PTO. We spend money in weird places that we just think are important and, you know, have all these dreams to spend money in different places that are, we think are really important, but that are not nearly tied to growth, right? They're not right. going to make us grow faster. I think ultimately it all makes you grow more, more sustainably because you're supporting people, but I can't, I wouldn't be able to tell you, hey, this is, if I do this, it's going to, you know, X plus Y equals Z. Like, that's not going to happen. So I just like having the flexibility to be like, there's nobody telling me that I have to work 40 hours. Where do these ideas 
How do they originate? Like that four-day work week one, like where did that come from internally and how did it actually happen? We do a lot of work around ensuring focus and that's been like a wild bit thing for a long time, you know, back from like reading people where, you know, like private offices and making sure people can get into the zone and work, you know, knowledge work and how important it is to have in the zone. So focus has always been this like really big part of our thinking and how we structure the team and how we build product. So like our offices, everybody has private offices, right? So, so it's always been this kind of thing that's sat above our heads. So the more focused work you get, the more productive you are. And kind of as a step towards that, we've had incremental steps where we've had a 40-hour work week, which seems obvious, but most teams work for more than 40 hours. Mm-hmm. So it was like a strict no weekends, no night, you know, 40-hour work week. Then we did this like flexible hours. So, you know, life happens between nine to five, right? So go on a two-hour bike ride because it's beautiful out. Go pick up your kid from school, you know, whatever you need to do. Like, I don't care. Do you. And if you want to work later, work later, but focus on 40 hours. So as part of, I think, all of that work that we did internally, there's a book by Cal Newport called Deep Work, where he talks about a lot of the psychology and also just some tactical ways to understand your meaningful deep work, the thing you get paid to do, right? Your unique ability, whoever, you know, whatever book you want to read, right? The thing that makes you, you, that's what we get paid to do. We can do a maximum of four hours of that a day, right? And there's some science behind that and, you know, and whatever. So if that's true and we can optimize for those four hours a day, then that's four times five is 20. And then we've got another 20 hours where we're doing other stuff, right? So we kind of looked at and said, well, what if it was 32, right? If we could do 32 hours and of which 20, nobody actually gets 20 solid hours of work done because even that's really hard. But kind of just that sparked the whole conversation around. And when you say we, who's we there? Is it a group conversation? Is it is it you noodling? Is it you and Chris? Is it? It's definitely Chris and I noodling. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, I like to. You'll ask the team. Like, I like to sprinkle ideas around the team and just get. It's how I get my thoughts better, right? So mm-hmm. I'll sprinkle an idea and get some feedback. I'll sprinkle it again, get some feedback. I'll do one on ones, and I kind of sprinkle things around the team to kind of get a good sense. I, Chris and I do a lot of the noodling. I mean, for sure. Like, I think I read the book first, and then I kind of was like, "Hey, what do you think about this?" And you know. The joy of being married and running a business together is like we get to talk about this all the time and nobody's mad at each other right like it's not my work or his work it's our work so it's like on vacation we're talking about work but it's fun and it's good and you know so it's we right chris and i probably and then kind of start putting it out there to the team it's hard to say like hey guys do you want to work 32 hours instead of 40 yes right so it's (laughs) like (laughs) i have to do a little bit of that thinking first but yeah i mean it was just an internal test to be honest with you it was like it was summer it was may and i was like Let's work for four. People do summer hours, right? I said, let's do it. Let's just work for four days a week, but not 40 hours in four days. Let's work 32 hours, right? Friday's mm-hmm. done. And people were so stressed out. Like I, I kept checking in. I was like, how are you guys doing? I don't know if this is a good idea. And I was like, what do you mean? And they're like, I, 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 don't, I can't do You know, what, we're, how are we getting enough work done? So like we had to do a lot of that. And like there was a lot of anxiety on Thursdays. Like, oh my God, I don't know if I'm getting enough done. And a year goes by. And we're on retreat and we looked back at like what we got accomplished and we got more accomplished in that year than we had gotten accomplished in recent history. Just purely like features, you know, we don't measure like I don't have like, you know, velocity or anything like that. (laughs) But features wise, we had the most productive year we had ever had working four days a week. You said, oh, it's more expensive. But if that's offset in productivity... That's why you said maybe only support is the area where it's actually more expensive because it really does equate to hours as opposed to productivity. 
this year has been a little harder because we've had mm-hmm. some, we've needed more people and we didn't hire them as, you know, there's been some, some mm-hmm. issues obviously. So I think operationally you have to be pretty solid to be able to also be really productive, right? I think we lost some focus work this year. Support hundred percent is an extra cost. I know that for sure. I'm not quite sure on engineering yet. I think we were really productive. We had a full team. We knew exactly what we were working on. We were kind of fully on course. I think 2019 will tell me better because I'm going to implement this new operating system a little bit. And I think that's going to give me a better sense of like what we can get done. Mm-hmm. You mentioned focused work and that's sort of the origin around this. So another thing that you've done at the company is experimenting with how you use Slack. <laughs> We have several times, and we have turned it off, if that's what you're referring to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. I don't have nice things to say about Slack, but I don't think it's Slack, to be right. totally honest. It's it's chat in general, right? It's distractions. We used HipChat. We used Campfire. I mean, we've used it forever. It totally defeats the whole premise of giving people the ability to focus their day and to be honest, own their day. People like to talk a lot about calendars and like, you should own your calendar and don't let people put calendar invites on, you know, without permit, you know, all these things. But Slack's worse than that, right? Because it's the whole thing of like constantly being distracted, this stress of constantly being on. I don't have to, you know, everybody knows it. So we turned it off. We've done it a couple of times and we do it to just see what's going to fall apart. Right. And uh, the last time we turned it off, we realized that the only thing that fell apart was one-on-one messaging because you still, your remote team, you need one-on-one messaging. So DMs are really important. Uh, and even tiny teams, right? Like just two folks or three, or three, you know, three folks mm-hmm. or something like that. You know, that was really important. But we almost completely dropped a bunch of channels that were complete. You know, they were fun. You know, there's this, the, you know, the book channel, the coffee channel, the, mm-hmm. the general channel. But, you know, we dropped things like, hey, no, hey, like, what is that? You know, like, and, and your remote team on different time zones and your general, you know, is like this whole thing of like, hey, 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 or stepping out back, stepping right. out back. You know, nobody needs to update your status, right? Like, it doesn't matter. And of course, everybody was insanely productive. I think one of the neatest things that happened is people realized how much they used Slack as a distraction kind of you get into that zone where like you're not focused. So you keep going back to Slack. So people realize like I need something else to do. So they would get up and take a walk, Mm -hmm. which is much more productive than getting your, you know, giving your brain an actual rest or Mm -hmm. go sit on the couch or do something. So that was really big. So I think those exercises, I mean, we still use Slack. I think those exercises are super important in everything, right? You swing the pendulum really far on one side to see what's going to fall apart. Mm-hmm. And I, that we still don't use general, you know, like we don't do a lot of that stuff. I'm pretty sure people still go back to it as a way to procrastinate. So, you know, I think we'll probably turn it off again and just remind ourselves what's important and how much more productive we are. Um, and I think same with four day work week, right? We're going to have to bring five days back at some point so we can feel it, right. see what we're missing and then take it away. You know, like, and that's part of, to me, like what a growing team, you can't be dogmatic about stuff. You kind of have to have to pull things around and, and see why you did it in the first place. But Slack's, I mean, it's all of it. We, Derek on our team built a little Slack bot called Pigeon Bot, which actually forces you to send an email. So like you go and you like forward slash and you're about to like ping somebody and you don't need to ping somebody. So you send an email because mm-hmm. I believe that email is a much more fair method of asking for somebody's attention. I agree. People hate email, but I don't understand why you hate. I mean, I, again, it depends and if on not, how. If not email, then like your ticketing system or something like yes. that. Because in an ideal world, you schedule your day where you kind of block off focus time, right? So, you know, in an ideal world, you're 
when I, and that varies from person to person. I'm, you know, you have to be a morning person, but you, you focus your, you know, like an hour or two, you come up for air and you're doing this busy work, right? This not deep work. You're checking email, you're checking base camp, you're checking your ticketing system. You know, you're doing whatever you're doing, you're doing support and then you go back in, right? And you go back in, you do some more deep work and you come out. And so it's that, that ability to, to own your time. Like when I'm deep, when I'm kind of on the surface doing other things is, where people feel the most productive, right? It's where they're fulfilled in their jobs. And when you take that away from them, that ability to schedule and, and own your deep thinking time is where they lose fulfillment. Mm-hmm. If they're constantly distracted all day long, that's what I can't tell you how many people I interview. I work better at night. No, you don't. <laughs> like you work better <laughs> at night because all day people are distracting you and you work right. better at night because there's no distractions. So replicate night at daytime. And you know, a lot of people can't because the company cultures and stuff. But if you can replicate that during the day, you can spend your nights with your children or your hobbies or your friends. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I can speak about that for, for days because <laughs> I just think it's so critical to fulfillment, right? Like in our own brains to be able to have space. But if you're a designer and you can't design, you're not fulfilled. Right. Mm-hmm. Practically speaking, where you're at today with Slack is you, you still have Slack, you have Slack turned on, and people are more thoughtful about how they use it. Would you say, given the experiments of turning it off? Yeah. So one thing is people are regularly reminded and hopefully feel confident to turn it off. Mm-hmm. So like when they're focused. So just don't or or said you know do not disturb. That's priority number one. And priority number two is that nothing is permanent in Slack. So I don't want that to be an inbox. I know a lot of teams who like make decisions in Slack and they live in Slack and there's nothing that makes me more angry. And so like that cannot be a thing, right? Permanent things go in permanent stores where people can go back to them, refer to them and check them on their own time. Coming into Slack as another inbox is horrible. Yeah. And that's where the anxiety comes in, right? Mm-hmm. So we use Slack. It's, mo- it's mostly DMs. Right. It's really just a back and forth. We have a headquarter, like, you know, for the Philly office, like we have a room so we can say when lunch is ready. Right. You know, that's right. it. And then I tell everybody to mute, like mute everything, like don't get alerts, but mute everything. I mean, we mute base camp notifications. We mute journal, you know, like because I'm really committed to you do that stuff when it's time for you to nothing is urgent. Pager duty is urgent. Pager mm-hmm. duty will call you and text you and email you and knock your door, knock on your door, right? Like th- it will find you. Everything else is not urgent. So you have to kind of like personal productivity is like on, on the team. I can't make you mm-hmm. be personally productive, but I can give you permission to turn things off. Mm-hmm. What are DMs used for now? I mean, we're remote, right? So I think to some degree, I'm probably a terrible example of it, right? Because of the nature of what I do. But I think... Um, Zoom, right? Like, so we use Zoom for calls. So we have a Zoom integration for Slack. So if two people are having a call or three people are having, or there's a team call, it'll go in Slack, right? Like with the Zoom link. I think we have one bot in Slack that does like a stand up for engineering, right? So they can, in their morning, everybody's morning, right? They can go in just their morning and then they can turn Slack off. And then it's just back and forth. Like sometimes it's Zoom is good, but sometimes it's good to just collaborate on a problem. So a lot of times what you'll see somebody will email and say, hey, can you, I have this issue or I need to chat to you about this. Do you have time? Like, yeah, three o'clock. And then they'll meet in in Slack, right? And then they'll either spring up a Zoom call or whatnot, you know, a video call. But it's more more that. That's a really good example of something that I struggle with as I think about the problems that we have and how we might react to them in actually very similar ways. But we also don't like direct messages because we prefer things not to happen behind closed doors and to be out in the open. But then when you have that conversation out in the open in a Slack room that everyone's there, they constantly get, oh, something's going on in that room and they switch back to it. And I don't know how to reconcile those two things. And I sort of come to the conclusion that you can't, you just have to balance your priority. So is it a higher priority 
that everything happen out in the open or that people are fulfilled in their work and, and not stressed out at work and are focused while they're working. I think my scale is tipping the other way, that it's more important that people are fulfilled in their work and focused and that than that it is that every conversation be available to everybody all the time. I've been thinking about that a lot too. So we we struggled even just from a, I mean, it's all related, but from like a decision-making speed of work process, right? Because we were always out, everything out in the open. So a landing page redesign would get put out to the whole team. Hey guys, what do you think? And we found that the design team actually did it first because they were like so over like everybody's feet. Not because people are intentionally being difficult. They're just, you know, there's a psychology around folks wanting to show that they care. So they tell you something, you know, or the whatever, all those things. So they nitpick and they give you feedback you don't need. And so we started, the design team started first, but they started working in, in a closed group, like just the design team or and, and the growth team. They went just like marketing team just in a closed group and what we found was they would ship things and obviously their stuff is a little lesser implications than if we just shipped a feature but on a, mm -hmm. on a micro scale if you looked at it they would ship things in a small group and get feedback after fact and what that would did was like those nitpicks like shade of yellow was not no longer relevant right mm -hmm. it was like what was relevant was bigger important things and so we're trying to apply that across the board in really small teams to say that we ask for feedback in big teams. You know, we kick off, we ask for feedback. Engineers can provide feedback on different implementations. People present their work, what they want to do. And then you go in as a smaller team and you kind of go down and try to work in small teams. And we actually have private Slack channels and private projects that people can't access because you're right. Like we struggled with the balance between, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings by not including them. So I'm going to include everybody. And then everybody's like, oh my God, I need to take a day off just to keep up with what everybody's working on. And you know, and it was like, oh, you know, but then we flipped to like totally private and everybody's like, I don't know what anybody's working on. And I have to push back and say, well, do you need to? How do we find that balance between what you need? So we're, we're playing with this idea that you work in small groups, but then you elevate up. So like, what's the cadence of planning and work being done where we start big. Here's the three big priorities for the quarter. You know, here's what every team is working on. Here's the spec. Here's how I'm going to implement any gotchas you can think of, anything that you think I'm going to screw up. Okay, great. You go down into the smaller groups and you work in smaller, you'll be faster. You'll get less feedback that you don't need, you know, all these things. And then how do you elevate up periodically to say, all right, we've gotten to this point. In engineering, it's easy because you ask for code reviews. So I mm -hmm. think to some degree you get some of that. Design's probably easy. You know, so there's ways to do it where like that's part of the new operating system actually is like understanding how to level up. But yeah, I'm pretty committed. I will tell you that I had this one, one employee who I love and she was like, I need to take a Friday off. This is before we had Fridays off because there's so much going on. I, I haven't caught up. And she runs a success team and she's like, I need to, I don't know that whatever, I, I have to take a day off to just catch up on things. And I was like, no, 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 that's a big problem, right? Yeah. Like, you know, there's just so much going on. So I hear you. I struggle with it too because even I make decisions now on my own and I used to just blabber on about all these things that I was working on. And then I realized like the team was like, just what are you doing? Like, what are you talking about? You know, so try to come up with concise messaging now so that it's like less distracting. Mm -hmm. So you know, you have the hybrid third of the team is in Philly and the rest is remote. How do you balance what we were just talking about or other things with that in-person versus remote stuff? We try to run remote first, which mm -hmm. we learned the hard way when we first got a Philly office. And 
bought a bunch of hardware for the conference. We designed conference rooms around this idea that we're going to have these like meetings with the remote team. And the remote team was like, uh, can't hear you. And it feels kind of crappy when there's three people to one and it's like us versus that, you know, mm-hmm. so we had to learn the hard way. Now everybody does a zoom call from their own desks and you know, all those things and no decisions are made in private and every, you know, decisions are shared. We hired a person actually. So we have a team happiness person. That's her title because I couldn't come up with anything better. But her job is to basically think about how do we feel as a cohesive team and are there things that the office team may be doing that the remote team isn't doing and how do we balance that? So it can be really simple. You know, we, we, we're going to do a holiday dinner every year with like the Philly team. And so we send every remote employee a gift certificate to go out to dinner with their spouse for the holidays, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, it's not going to replicate the team being together, but at least it, it, it hopefully sends a message says like, Hey, we get it. Like go have dinner and just like, you know, think about us and we're thinking about you and we want you to have a nice time. And so we try to kind of balance that as much as we can. But the Philly office truly, like somebody said on retreat last year, that it's it feels like wild, but co-working space. Because mm-hmm. we have private offices, it's not like there's a ton of chatter going on. And and we only see each other at lunch. And even now, we only do lunch twice a week. So yeah, there's times I don't see anybody. You know, mm-hmm. So it's, it doesn't quite have the effect that a huge office, open floor office would have. But it's it's a thoughtful, constant exercise. I mean, it is hard. I think that is one of the hardest things about running a business is the remote culture and how when you care about people so much, how do you take care of folks? Because it's lonely and it's difficult, right? No mm-hmm. matter how, how introverted you may be, it's still lonely. You need humans. And so we do a lot to make sure that we provide for the team, even just the outlet to talk about it and bring people together and make sure that they think about ways to help that loneliness and help that lack of feeling connected. Well, Natalie, I wish you and Wildbit and all of your products the greatest success possible. Thank you for coming on and sharing. I really appreciate it. Of course. If people want to find out more or follow along or get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? I am just Natalie Nagel on Twitter. Find me there. And then we're wildbit.com and all the stuff's, you know, all the products and the whole journey's on there. And as I said, you know, you were on the show in 2013, five years ago, that was episode 62. So you can go back and listen to that at giantrobots.fm slash 62. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.